You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. Tonight, we're talking about our first James Bond film, Casino Royale. Our dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. The middle children of history, man. No purpose, no place. We have no great war. No great depression. Podcast. I'm Brian. With me tonight, Paul Williams. What's happening, man? What's happening? Oh, not too much, man. I'm really excited. We're talking about our first Bond film here on the podcast. Yep, first Bond film. Spectre's getting ready to come out in theaters. Um, by the time this podcast is up, people may be going to see it. Yeah, I'm super pumped for that. So we're doing Casino Royale because we're just super excited about Bond. This movie has, uh, it, it definitely has a different feel from any other Bond movie. This is actually a reboot. It's also a remake kind of too. Okay, I guess we should explain this real quick. There were some right issues. I guess there weren't really right issues. Back in the 50s, Casino Royale was the first Bond book that was written by Ian Fleming. And this producer, Gregory Radoff, he ended up buying the rights. He died and Charles, this other guy, Charles Feldman, ended up having them. And they made Casino Royale in 67 for Sony. Well, the other Bond series was going on at the time with with Sean Connery. I think, I want to say it was uh, You Only Live Twice was coming out. And these films were kind of competing. So there were two two Bond films out, and this is not the first time this has happened. There are also some right issues with Thunderball, but we'll save that for a Thunderball podcast. They got the rights. The Broccoli's got the rights, and that's the family that produces the Bond films. Yeah, there's like, it's just a family legacy. Like, uh, Barbara Broccoli and... Michael Wilson are the are the producers now. And when we talk about the Bond films, these are the Bond films I'm talking about. We're not going to we're not talking about Casino Royale and we're not talking I'm in Casino Royale the 67 version and we're not talking about Never Say Never Again. Those are unofficial, not part of canon Bond movies. This is my series. These are the films I like. So the Broccoli's, they got the rights for Casino Royale. I think it was like around 2000. And there were some rumors that were floating around that Pierce Brosnan was going to be in a Casino Royale movie and Quentin Tarantino was possibly going to write the script or direct it. I remember reading that in some magazine way back in the day. Uh, this was after Pierce Brosnan did Die Another Day, and this was before they they dropped him and went with Daniel Craig. Well, I'll be damned. I did not know that. To be honest with you, I'm a fan of the the Roger Moore and Sean Connery and... Pierce Bronson Bond films, but I, I really, you know, this is the first the first time I've I've ever seen this movie. You know, I, I kind of got out of the Bond films there for a little bit. It was definitely a different Bond. 
Hold on, wait. So, to... have you seen any of the Daniel Craig Bond movies? I have no. I haven't seen the other two. So this is yeah. your very first. Oh wow, dude. Yep. <clears throat> the last Bond films that I watched were the ones with uh, Pierce Brosnan. So yeah, this is definitely a different Bond to me. A little, um, a little bit of a tonal and, shift here. Oh, I would say more than a little bit. When when I think of Bond, I think of that that real suave debonair that you see from Piers Brodson. Roger Moore somewhat, but not quite as much as Piers Brodson and, and Sean Connery, in my opinion. They are just those absolute cool, uh, sophisticated, suave, debonair, you know, English gentlemen. This is the first time we've kind of gotten a, a younger Bond, so it is it is different. This movie reminds me of like a rebellious teenager Bond. The Bond in this film is completely okay. You gave me a license to kill, which means I have the license to do any motherfucking thing I want to do. No, I think you're right. Yeah, he's like um, he's in his teenage angst assassin years. <laughs> but yeah. come on, M. I really wanted to kill this Ugandan dude. So you bring up M, all right? The M character is played by Judy Dench, great actress. But she also played M in the Pierce Brosnan films as well. Yes, she did. And it's, and it's all re- of them. Yeah, right? It's really weird because she took over M in Goldeneye, which was the first Pierce Brosnan film. Now she's still M, and but the Bond is younger. And we know he's younger because he's... He, he becomes a double O in this film. We well, own this something. <clears throat> and I know this is kind of might be a little, well, it's related. Might be a little off topic, but you know, that, that was really kind of like what got me into the bond films was playing double O seven Nintendo 64. Are oh, you talking about Goldeneye? 007. Yeah. Goldeneye playing that, that game kind of really got me into Pierce Brodson bond films. You know, I had seen some of the Roger Moore films and I had seen a couple of the, Sean Connery films and stuff. The GoldenEye game for 64, yeah, that was that was huge. Uh, I think that got a lot of people on, on the Bond bandwagon and made a lot of Bond fans that way. I, yeah, I mean, that was a that was a huge thing. All right, so uh, b- back to Daniel Craig being James Bond. Dude, I mean, there was a huge, huge internet outrage when he was cast. I mean, one of the things, like, you're watching this movie and you're like, yes, it's totally different, but, man, Daniel Craig looks different. I mean, he is... He's got blonde hair, blue eyes. He looks different from the previous Bonds, who have all been, you know, brown-haired, brown-eyed yeah, guys. He's not, yeah, he's not what you would, would typically associate with Bond. You know, he, he plays that go-getter, that hard-headed, you know, I'm out to get my man, you know. This was the first time you saw this. What did you think about the absence of Money, Penny, and Q? I was curious to know where they were. Yeah, they're just, they're not in this film. Is there any real reason? Yeah, they're not really needed in the story. And I guess this is kind of Bond's movie. It's kind of like a Bond origin story. You know, usually it, the movies are about Bond stopping some evil villain. That happens in this film, but it, we're following Bond like a lot and getting to <laughs> yeah, you know, getting a lot of character beats with him. Well, that's another thing that I kind of noticed about this movie where it's like, yeah, there was a bit of a sinister villain. And it was more or less like a villain behind a villain. But there was no, like, megalomaniacal villain, you know, bent on world domination or, you know. 
I think that goes back to the tone, though. I mean, like, they set this film up with a very realistic tone. Like, they try to make Bond as realistic as possible and still keep it fun and entertaining with a lot of action and spectacle and big set pieces. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, that, I mean, but, like, okay, we haven't know, even touched on the gadgets yet. Like, the gadgets are, they're pretty much non-existent in this movie. He gets a defibrillator in his car, and his yeah, car comes with a gun holder like, with his yeah, Walter they, PPK and silencer. Was that a Walter PPK pistol that he had, or yeah. no? It doesn't look like one. What he had looked more like like a British special issue nine millimeter, British special issue forty five caliber. Yes, yeah, they never call it out in the movie. They never say what he has, and usually, like you know, that's that's Bond's gun is the Walter PPK. That that was one thing that I really did know that was noticed that was lacking in in this movie, and uh, there were really no gadgets. And uh, I was a little bummed out about that. You notice that this is a Bond film. It's about him kind of coming into his own. Yeah, yeah. exactly, right? It's about him becoming Bond. Like, he doesn't have everything in place yet, but at, at, by the time the movie ends, when he's in that last shot, there we go, that's James Bond. And the next yeah, movie... that's the Bond you want to see. Yeah, yeah that's the next the movie, Bond. that's going to be Bond, dude. That's going to be amazing. It's really good to see that progression, you know, in that part where Vespa and him are having, you know, kind of like that behavioral analysis where they're kind of sizing up one another. Okay, well, that does give you a little bit of background on why his character is so reckless in this movie. You know, you're taking you're taking a person who has been under military military dominance basically and then you put him in mi6 which is a secret we're not really a secretive but an intelligence operations and then you give him double O status which the license to kill and it's like letting a teenager that's been stuck up in the house for years and years and years just loose upon the world and they're gonna wreak fucking havoc and that's exactly what james bond does in the beginning of this film that's true. All right, dude. Let, let's play the trailer. Take a break and come back, and we are going to spoil the hell out of this film. Hopefully you've seen it. You should. The man was Le Chief, private banker to the world's terrorists, which would explain how he could set up a high-stakes poker game at Casino Royale in Montenegro. If he loses this game, he'll have nowhere to run. You're the best player in the service. The Treasury has agreed to stake you in the game. But if you lose, our government will have directly financed terrorism. I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed house. You noticed. I hope our little game isn't causing you to perspire. It doesn't bother you killing those people. Well, I wouldn't be very good at my job if it did. Not a girl melted your cold heart yet. James, get the girl out. You're not going to let me in there. You've got your armor back on. I have no armor left. You've stripped it from me. Whatever is left of me. Whatever I am. The only question remains Will you yield? 
in time. All right, we're back. That was the trailer for Casino Royale, the 21st Bond film. We're going by the broccoli calendar here. That's a lot of damn films, dude. Yeah, yeah. I think Godzilla is the only thing that, that has it beat. I want to talk real quick just about the Bond intro. Every Bond movie, before the title comes up, or you get the awesome animated title sequence, you get a cool Bond moment to kind of set you into the movie, to get you pumped for James Bond. I never, I never knew what the double O stood for, but now you know it's he gets his first two kills, and once you get your first two kills, then you are elevated to this double O status, which I guess makes you like a super spy. But this is all shot in black and white. It's a really cool scene. I love how it's shot. I love how everything in the foreground is like they have all these foreground objects that are out of out of focus. The frames they'll go to these really nicely wide shots that are awesomely composed, totally obeying the rule of thirds and just has everything that has a nice symmetrical feel. The only elegancy that, that Bond's character has in that in that in that part of the movie right there is when he's actually talking to the, the guy. Shame. We barely got to know each other. I know where you keep your gun. Suppose that's something. True. How did you die? Your contact? Not well. If this would have been Broughton or Connery, they would have just went up in the bathroom, popped the dude, and been all like, popped their collar about it and shit. You know, this guy's like in the bathroom tearing this motherfucker up. Like, But no, this is cut. This has got a real modern feel to it. Okay, I say it's got a real modern feel. Let's just go ahead and call it Casino Royale has a very Jason Bourne feel to it. It, it really does. I mean, the Bourne movies were out. They were kind of, well, they weren't making more money, but they were making a lot of money, and that was kind of like the new hip style. Dude, I'm not going to sit here and talk smack on the Bourne movies, but I mean, really. Oh, no, I love those Bourne films. I'm not talking smack about them at all. Are you insane? I like them. Oh, yeah, I'm not at all. But it's like somebody just come up with the idea of saying, let's take the idea of Bond and combine it with the idea of Rambo. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Well, I mean, that's kind of what Bond is, too, right? Like. Man, nobody can kill yeah. Bond. Like even when the villains got him, they have to get into a monologue and yeah, tell them <laughs> their evil plan yeah. instead of kill the dude. Like just shoot the guy, man. Look, all right, you have him captured. Shoot yeah, like, the motherfucker right now. Movie over. Bad guy wins. Goldfinger has Fort Knox. <laughs> you know, I mean, like just seriously, like if you if you got him well, on a table and you have a fucking death ray, use your death ray and cut James Bond in the half. Fuck that. You're going to go from the head to the crotch, not from the crotch to the head. Goldfinger did not have anything wrong with the direction he was going. Like, the problem is is that he stopped because the direction he was going, I I liked. He would still (laughs) be alive while his balls were roasting, and then he would slowly die a painful death. When you bring that up, that totally reminds me of uh, Seth Green's character in The Spy of Shagman. He's like, well, you just take out a gun and just shoot him. Oh, okay. Well, that's another thing we should bring up, too. Yeah, the Austin Powers movies came out in the 90s and the late 90s, (laughs) early 2000s, and they kind of ruined James Bond for everybody. They kind of fucked James Bond up. The second and third Austin Powers movies actually have grossed more when they came out than 
any of the Bond films had, I think, all the way up until Skyfall. Damn. Here in the United States. I don't know about worldwide. Probably not worldwide because that is it's not oh, yeah. just a yeah. UK and America English speaking thing. It is way beyond that. <laughs> the Japanese actually nicknamed James Bond uh, Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Dude, think about this guy. He's out. He's got a gun. He's got a license to kill. He's drinking vodka and martinis. He drives fast cars, and he just sleeps with any broad that will... Why do we like this character? Yeah, yeah. James James Bond is definitely a bit of a man whore. But, dude, he's so cool. I mean, like, I got absorbed into the cult too early. There's no <laughs> hope for me. Cult of Bond. Back to this open real quick before we, before we move on. The film doesn't start with the gun barrel open. The dots that go across the screen, then the big gun barrel, and Bond shooting at us, the blood coming down. The way 20 other Bond movies opened before this one, I was really mad about that the first time I saw this. And then they showed where the whole gun barrel scene comes from. I know nerds nitpicked it a a million times apart that he didn't actually walk across and then... Okay, yes, his placement and the blocking of Daniel Craig in this is not exactly like the gun barrel sequence that we've seen 20 times before this, but come on. I mean, look, I love this. But this Bond film is not like other Bond films we've seen before this either. Yeah, exactly, right? The sequence that we've seen 20 times before, here we go. This is its origin. I thought that was a great, just something great for the fans. Daniel Craig kind of won me over in this. I, I want to say, I know that's Chris Cornell. The opening song is You Know My Name. Yeah. It's by Chris Cornell. I, I actually, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of Soundgarden, and I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of Audio Slave, but I like Chris Cornell as a singer. But man, dude, I really like this opening title sequence. I thought this was really cool. There's no. I name- really enjoyed it myself. I really did. Yeah, like the the whole card themes. Like I love when they can work the theme of the film in really well to the title sequence. And this is one of my favorite title sequences of any Bond movie. I mean, like this is top three material here. When the intro kind of started, I was like, oh, well, here we go. Typical Bond intro. It's really cool, too, because the actual song, it's it's really weirdly aggressive. It's like, you know my name. It's actually like James Bond telling you the story you know, of like who he is. It's a very bizarre theme that they picked, but I think it's it works really well for this film doing what they're doing, you know, setting this up. It's a reboot. It's our origin story. Here we go. We got, we got a different song. I usually like Bond themes or the main theme song sung by a woman, really. But I, as as yeah. far as guys go, I mean, this one and, you know, of course, Duran Duran did an awesome job with A View to a Kill. These aren't bad. If you play Metal Gear Solid 3... If you listen to even the song, the song, the way that whole beginning sequences or the credit sequences in that game, dude, I, I mean no disrespect to this, totally ripped off from Bond. It makes it makes it so cool because it has that Bond feel to it. Ugandan sequence. Some of the, the the kids that they had at, at there, you know, some of those guns were actually bigger than the freaking kids were, man. That was actually shot 
behind the Pinewood Studios lot. There's a there's some park behind Pinewood Studios, and that's where they shot that. And Pinewood Studios, that's this huge, famous. I don't know if it still is, but I know at one time for sure it was the it's the biggest film studio in the world. Um, it may have, I don't know if it still is or not, but that's where they shot almost every single. They've, I think they've shot every Bond there. So yeah, Uganda. It's in the back of London because Pinewood Studios is this huge London studios. That's what they also shot Aliens there as well. Yeah, I was gonna say Aliens was shot there. Yeah, and Star Wars and man, so, so many great movies have been shot there. That is definitely like, that. That's like on my bucket list. Visit Pinewood Studios. Just oh man, so much history, bro. So much history. It's amazing. Production designer uh, Peter Lamont. He he actually brought in like some kind of like red. Cr- red clay just because the the dirt wasn't right so he brought in this this red dirt that would be found in uganda or at least red dirt that looked like dirt that was in uganda you know man that might actually explain the reason why they watered it down so much and made it look so muddy oh yeah i think they were proud of their dirt very proud of their dirt if they're gonna you know try to make it look that authentic oh dude they they spare no expense on on bond films these bond movies cost so much to make and i mean they put every dollar on screen that's why you see so many extras you see all this stuff i mean everything is built like yeah that uganda i guess i don't know what it is it's like an army camp or whatever dude that is completely built that's just a section of woods they built everything that you see in that scene the production designer peter lamont i think this was his last film uh that i know of i don't think he does anything anymore I mean, this guy, he, he's been the production designer on Bond films since For Your Eyes Only. I mean, that is how long this guy's been doing production design. And this was his last Bond movie. So he's done From Your Eyes Only with Roger Moore all the way up to this. And he was working before that in the art department. I mean, he was working with, with Ken Adams, who was doing those, like, Ken Adams did that incredible um, set in um, You Only Live Twice, that big volcano layer. It's it's mm-hmm. like the one they make fun of in um, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Loved Me, or whatever that second yeah. one is, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever that whatever that stupid title is, the spoof title. But uh, yeah, so he built that big volcano set. Ken Adams did the uh, set for Doctor Strangelove, that war room set, dude. I mean, this. I mean, these are such craftsmen, dude. Well, if you if you actually if you have the Blu-ray or the big box set. DVDs of of the Alien quadrilogy. I highly recommend like watching the making of Aliens, and you can see, man, dude, Peter Lamont's just on there, and he, it, there's a some really good interviews with him. He's an incredibly gifted man um, that knows how to build some amazing sets and put a lot of detail in frame. But yeah, that's all I. I, I mean, this this guy is historic. I just I, I I just had to mention him real quick. I'm sorry to totally like derail the podcast onto. <laughs> let, let, let's talk about this really cool action scene that was actually supposed to be the action scene that was going to open the movie before the whole black and white thing came up. The scene in Madagascar. You have people bidding on a battle between a cobra and a weasel. No, it's a mongoose, right? Isn't it like the cobra and the mongoose, right? Yeah, the cobra and the mongoose. Right, and, that, and that, that's like all the thing, right? The cobra and the mongoose, there's always that story. Or just a snake and a mongoose. I just assumed it was a mongoose. I don't know <laughs> an actual animal that was. It was a rodent of some kind. It was some kind of goddamn weasel. Then you have the, the freestyle running chase sequence. 
the parkour race. The actor that's playing the the bomb guy, his face is all disfigured in the in the film. Yeah, the burn guy. Yeah, he's actually some famous parkour guy. I'm not a sports dude, so I don't follow that wrong podcast. Sorry. Yeah, that dude's got some skills. I mean, there's no denying that that guy's got some serious skills. That this was where I started to get off of the Daniel Craig Bond train a little bit in the movie. Now this guy is running and jumping and away from him, and that's his. Uh, he makes bombs and then also parkours on the weekend, and I'm fine with that. That's that's cool because this is a cool. This is a really cool action sequence. You know, I mean, it's fucking amazing. There's one sequence where like this guy like does some really cool trick through some window. And then Bond just busts through some drywall like Frankenstein or you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like yeah. the Kool-Aid guy, jumps. like, oh yeah. <laughs> and then he he uh gets on the scissor the scissor lift and cuts the uh pneumatic line for it. No, see, okay, now that part I was okay with because I mean that's that's what James Bond does. He's like, you know, why work harder when I can work smarter? You you know, because this is supposed yeah, to be an Oxford educated guy, right? So he's supposed to be using his brain. Yeah, but I don't think the Oxford educated man would bust through the wall like you said, the Kool Aid man. Well, that's kind of why I have a problem with that dude. I mean, I like this movie a lot. I think it's a terrific film. It's a terrific action movie. Um, it's a really good spy movie. But man, that's that, that. I do have some issues with this movie, and that is one of them. I really that doesn't do it for me. The part where the dude just like stops and he pulls out the gun and he starts shooting at Bond, but Bond is driving like a fucking bulldozer. Oh He's yeah, like, oh, do you really think you're gonna win this now, dude? There's a bunch of moments like that, and I they do another moment like that where they do the uh oh suspense moment where they get on top of this crane. <laughs> and James Bond gets up there, and the bomb maker just pulls out his gun. Daniel Craig has this weird look on his face where he's just like, I don't know what he's exactly portraying, whether it's like, well, if I'm going to die, that's okay, or if he's just like, well, I know you ran out of bullets, and I'm just so tired. I need a break. But did did yeah. James Bond know that it was unloaded or not? I mean, because he does act extremely relaxed. When he gets up there, he's just like, he kind of takes a breath for a second. And is it like a, oh, shit breath? Or is it like a, oh, I don't have to worry about this at all. I got this covered. Well, uh, I mean, I, I think it was like in one of those situations where he he just knew the guy didn't have any more rounds left in the in the magazine. And I think it was more like, okay, well, this is a little bit of a relaxing moment because I know this dude's not going to blow my fucking head off. Just from the first time I saw this in the theater till now, like every time I watch the movie, I'm always like, I wonder what he's thinking there because his expression means multiple things to me. I yeah, love that. Yeah, you know, I, it's just like, oh, that's such a good performance, yeah, man. I, you know, it means it could mean different things. I love that. You want to know one issue that I have in this sequence is at the very end, Bonds went through all this shit to apprehend this bomb guy, right? Then he just fucking shoots him. Well, why did you do that? He tells him later in the movie, like, You've got a bloody cheek. Sorry. I'll shoot the camera first next time. Or yourself. You stormed into an embassy. You violated the only absolutely inviolate rule of international relationships. And why? So you could kill a nobody. We wanted to question him, not to kill him. For God's sake, you're supposed to display some kind of judgment. I did. I thought that one less bomb maker in the world would be a good thing. 
Exactly. One bomb maker. We're trying to find out how an entire network of terrorist groups is financed, and you give us one bomb maker. Hardly the big picture, wouldn't you say? And he does get the yeah, phone. It was almost either one or two things. It's like like you were just saying you were kind of stuck on the, the crane crane sequence. I was kind of stuck on that because it was either like, well, either this was either put here in the movie or a little bit of filler in the beginning or the point where he was like, you know what, man, I'm just straight up fucking tired of chasing this dude. So now that I caught him, I'm just going to shoot him. And then that makes me question, like, what do if you're going to shoot him? Why did you even chase him? Why did you go through all this shit risking your life when you could have just put a bullet in his ass? I mean, that's what you did eventually anyway. You bring up a very interesting point. I mean, that's what this movie does. This movie doesn't fill in all the gaps all the time, right? At least a lot of gray area and a lot of interpretation into it. Like, especially when we get a little bit later into the movie with Matheson's character. And, like, there's there's this whole thing with this Matheson character who's an ally of Bond's. There's even a point in the movie where Lashif, the bad guy in the film, who cries blood, he actually tells Bond that, like, I'm afraid your friend Mathis is really my friend Mathis. I don't know at that moment if he's lying or not. You, you don't actually know that until the sequel, Quantum of Solace. Because the, the last you hear of it, I mean, even at the end of the film, you find out that Vesper betrays Bond. But it's like, well, did Mathis just do it? And it's like, uh, I don't know, torture him some more. And we'll find out. <laughs> well, at least this clears Mathis. No. No? No. We'll just prove that she's guilty, not that he's innocent. Could have been a double blind, keep sweating him. The whole sequence on the boat was a little weird, man. Like, when you first, when you first get your, introduced to your main villain, and he's, like, crying blood and... That, that was, like, they never really explained that either. Like, what the fuck happened to the dude's eye? He has a perfect explanation for it. Let's listen to that now. Weeping blood comes merely from a derangement of the tear duct, my dear general. Nothing sinister. I guess your eyeball's fucking demented, too. Dude, he's mysterious. You can't tell the audience how he got the scars. Otherwise, they wouldn't be, you know. It's just like in The Dark Knight, right, where the Joker tells you, and you're like, oh, that kind of sucks. And then he tells you again, but it's a different story, and you're like, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. It's like you don't really well, see, want that, to that, know. But that makes it more interesting, though. That that right there makes it more interesting. This is just like, okay, dude, well, you know, I really don't care why your eyes fucked up. Obviously, you're a bad guy because you got a fucked up eye. And well, normally, that's kind of like the go-to Bond thing, some scarred up villain. Bond villains have some kind of also physical deformity, disfigurement, whatever else on them. Like, I mean, even in the first Bond movie, Dr. No, like, Dr. No has mechanical hands. And there's there's jaws. He has metal teeth, and he kills people by biting their necks with metal teeth. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I mean, nope. And there's a guy that has a top hat that throws it and breaks people's necks. I don't know if that is even physically possible, but it's cool. James Bond villains have unique characteristics that make them larger than life, and I I like that because they're still trying to keep the reality here. But at the same time, they're still going a little bit bigger. The crying blood, I know that did bother a lot of people, but personally that doesn't bother me because it's badass. And I really did think it gave a lot of mystique to the character as well, too. 
so after this huge thing with the embassy, we meet our bad guy. And then after that, Bond's kind of, he's kind of in trouble with M and MI6. Yeah, he's done pissed mom off pretty good. But he actually starts following this up, you know, he, he goes above and beyond. He's like, oh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to find these fuckers and I'm going to keep at it. I did like that. I thought I was like, yeah, that's Bond. That's who Bond is. Like he is queen yeah, and country I, I, first and everything else is secondary. Yeah, and after Bond goes on this little holiday, he goes to the Bahamas. And, you know the MI6 wouldn't be hooking no Bond up with no Ford Fusion. Was he driving a Ford yeah, Fusion? Yeah, when you first, when you when, when it first cuts to the Bahamas, yeah, he's driving a Ford Fusion. Probably a quarter of this movie is pl- is paid for with product placement. I, you know, I mean, like, I don't know how many times they cut to a Sony Ericsson phone. There's, they even like the security camera footage in this in this scene where he goes to this club, there, this golf club resort. There, the security camera footage is on a Blu-ray disc, and it is in a Sony Blu-ray player. There's so much product placement. It's not overwhelming, but I mean, when movies are this big and there's this much at stake, you kind of have to accept that there's a lot of product placement in it. I mean, but there are a lot of shots of Sony Ericsson phones in this movie. Yeah, there are really a lot of shots of them. Does unfortunately make it feel dated less than ten years. Like this came out in two thousand six. This is nine years ago from the yeah. date of this recording, and it already like the phone scene. It's like, oh wait, you don't have an you don't have an iPhone, Bond? What, God, you Stone Age motherfucker! This is a cool scene. We get we get to meet like a kind of a side villain. But I, the weirdest thing that I thought that was included in this film was that Bond all of a sudden has an obsession with married women. Yeah, I didn't, I really, I was like, damn, dude, you're at it already. I mean, Bond is constantly sleeping with his, he's constantly sleeping with any woman he runs into contact with in these films. Once again, Bond is a bit of a man whore. I really didn't think that it was quite as a, as in your face in in this movie as it has been in previous Bond films. I mean, he doesn't, but he doesn't, he doesn't even have sex. I mean, or at least that's the impression that I got was that, you know, he never even got it on with uh, the first chick. He was just basically using that bitch to get information. It's never implied that he has sex with her, but he does mention in that scene where he's just like, yeah... And even when he meets uh, Vesper, and Vesper's like, you know, kind of, she's kind of like, "Hey, stop hitting on me, creep." He's like, "Oh, honey, don't worry, you're not my type." And she's like, "What? I got, I got too many brains." And he's like, "No, you are single." I don't really understand where that character trait came from. Bond is a co-adulterer. He never discriminated <laughs> ever before in any of the other films, right? So why is he discriminating now? Like, what is his big deal? And now he's like, "You have to be married." Why? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. I'm not I'm not really on board with this. It kind of comes out of nowhere. I see what they're trying to do here. They're trying to make Vesper seem more desirable and his attachment to her later on. I think they could have done that a different way. This wife of this the first guy he's trying to get in the Bahamas. She just like comes riding through on this fucking horse and there's like all these kids like running around playing on the beach and shit. She's like, fuck you, kids. Fuck you, children. I ride my horse where I want to. I, I thought it was so weird that they had Daniel Craig come out of the water like Ursula Andress did in Dr. No. When Honey Rider's coming out of the water in Dr. No, 
I get that from Bond's perspective. This is from no one's perspective. Like the camera is just we're just we're just seeing events happen. We're seeing Bond come out of the water for no reason watching her in a bikini. I mean, I understand what they're doing for fans and it's a callback, but at the same time it's they're just throwing a bone to the ladies, I guess. Yeah, but why not have her come out of the water? I mean, I'm not trying to say anything kind of derogatory or anything by that, but I mean, that would have been typical Bond style, but once again, this movie is definitely not a typical Bond movie. I guess I would understand it if it was a complete reversal. You know where, okay, so the the first Bond girl in the film is watching Bond come out of the water and objectifying him as an object of desire. Yeah. I would understand yeah, that, that's, but that's not what's happening here. Exactly. So it's just kind of like, what are you saying yeah, by doing this? Are you? Man. We have all this eye candy for the guys. Like we 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 got to have some Bond skinned in here. Our Bond is ripped. He's got the best chest. This Bond really works out. He doesn't work as he doesn't work out as well as the uh, sax player from the Lost Boys. But you know, hey, definitely not. I still believe. This was like 10 years ago, so I guess he was like, you know, he's he's in his mid to late 30s at this point. He looks pretty good, dude. Look, dude, I'm in my early 30s, and I don't look that good now. I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm just saying. Like, I'm with you, man. He follows uh, her husband over into the uh, – he follows over to Miami, I think. Yeah, and into the airport and shit. Yeah, and they go into this this body. It's I think it's like Body Works or something. It's like some weird body art museum thing. It's interesting. I forget what, what exactly it's called, but he's he's following this guy through here, and they have this cool knife fight. I really love how that is cut together. Really cool, man. That was really really cool. Yeah, Stuart Baird, um, the editor. This guy is one of my favorite editors of all time. He cut this. He cut Skyfall. Oh, my God, dude. This guy has cut so many great movies. He also directed Star Trek Nemesis and, um, like, Executive Decision. And he is doing some great work here. And this knife fight that Bond and this guy have is so good. That scene has a real nice Hitchcockian vibe to it. It's very suspenseful. It's over really quick. But, man, it's just... It, it is incredibly tense. Yeah, it is. It's a very intense scene. Yeah, I will agree with you on that. And I do like how it's got like a dance where like each one makes a move, and the, the oh, dude, the bad guy just puts his hand behind Bond's neck. Now, keep in mind, they're having this night fight. There's everyone around them too, so it's like they're trying to be all covert while they're having this night fight, which makes it even that much more suspenseful. It's really weird to see a covert, you know, a nonchalant knife fight. So Lashif, our bad guy, his entire, or I guess our Bond villain, I should say, his entire plan is that he's going to blow up this airplane and he is going to bet against this company. So he's going to blow up the airplane. Their stock's going to crash. He's going to make millions and millions, a hundred millions of dollars. But Bond stops it. So what do you yeah. do? You enter in a to- poker match tournament at the Casino Royale, and um, yeah, you try to get your money back. And you bet it, you play poker against the guy who uh, caused you to lose all this money. And of course, the first Bond girl dies. So they're going to go and win all this money against Lashif. And the whole idea is, is 
is if that MI6, if they win against Lashif, Lashif will have no other choice but to spill his guts to MI6. These guys, you know, these they were revolutionaries that gave this guy money that were in Uganda, and but they're going to come after him. I said mainly, most of all, the Mr. White dude. So the, the Mr. White guy is kind of acting as this, like, specter organization. We later find out that it's Quantum that he's working for, but we're already setting up this evil organization that comes into play later in the movie, but we're setting them up right here in the beginning. This whole film is starting to open up and to set things up for a bigger world. You know, initially when I watched this movie, there were a couple problems that I had with it. Now looking at it after I watched movie now looking at it it really does it really sets up this mastermind organization so yeah in this first bond film like we discussed earlier you don't get that this megalomaniacal evil villain because it's kind of you're really getting to know bond you know i'm assuming in the next film that it sets up for the megalomaniacal villain not only that but it there's a scene when they start playing poker a little bit later where you kind of feel sorry for him or you kind of at least understand why he needs to enter this poker game. Like, if he doesn't, yeah. these people are going to kill him. So it's it's kind of yeah. the first time that we've seen a Bond villain. Like, you understand, like, if they don't do what they're going to do, they're they're dead anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, you see the, you see the Ugandan guy, him and one of his partners show up during this this first round of the poker tournament that blonde headed with his girlfriend or wife or whatever they get her and they're gonna cut her hand off and stuff and and then bond kind of saves his ass for that man then he turns around and fucking poisons the dude he definitely wants bond dead i mean because you know bond's the one that's at least the way the film's cut and the way the film is portrayed bond's really the only one that's a threat to him you know, everybody else is steadily losing chips. Bond does lose, though. There's this whole thing that's set up throughout the movie with the card games and with Bond learning Lashif's tell, his giveaway, the fact that he knows he's bluffing. And he thinks he's got him under control, and it turns out Lashif the entire time is playing him. And he closes Bond out, and of course he wants to buy back in, and Vesper, played by Ever. Eva Green, she just straight out refuses him. Ain't happening. Yeah, and their relationship at this point in the movie, it's been... They haven't met yeah. eye to eye yet. They haven't had a moment. They, they're they definitely butting heads at this point in time. Yeah, Bond's kind of hitting on her, and she's like kind of not having any of it. We figure out all this why later. I mean, okay, the whole thing is, is that... This group that Mr. White works for has her hu- has her husband, her boyfriend, the guy she truly loves, is being held captive by this organization. And she's betraying Bond and trying to get make it so Lashif wins or that this organization gets the money. Well, I mean, to her, either way, it doesn't really matter if Lashif or Bond wins. <clears throat> she's got to get the money. Well, I always took it, though, that, yes, she needs to get the money, but... If Lashif wins, then all the problems are solved. This organization can go back to working as normal. So I feel yeah. like they planted her in there to get that to happen. I mean, this is never really said. 
you know Lashif is playing Bond based off this tell because somebody tells him that Bond has figured his giveaway out. He says it's Mathesis, but we don't know if it is for sure. I haven't seen the second win in about two or three years, but I'm pretty sure you find out because this character returns in Quantum of Solace that you find out that he had nothing to do with giving out any information. He didn't betray Bond at all. And that MI6 actually gives him like some kind of house as some payment. But I mean, that's not said in this movie. When you, when you just watch this movie, it's very much a question mark on who's portraying who, when, what's going on behind the scenes. Bond really never knows. So neither does the audience. Like, like we said, this is Bond's story. We know really what Bond knows. We don't get too many scenes away from him. Yeah, and and also in the second round of the uh, poker tournament, Bond also finds that there's the other agent, the CIA agent. Felix Leiter, played by Joe Wright, who is an incredible, amazing actor who was really great in Syriana. If you haven't seen that, please do so. George Clooney won his Oscar for it. Joe Wright's also in that. He's amazing. He he basically kind of works out this thing where he's going to help Bond out. You know, the third round comes around, and then the sheep's wife poisons Bond, and you know you have the whole uh, scene with the defibrillator, and then Vespa ends up coming up and saving his life. Dude, that defibrillator scene was great, man! It was so good. It was awesome, but that defibrillator was like the worst fucking defibrillator ever. Yeah, it's like oh, seriously, dude. Like the charge cord can come unplugged. Yeah, yeah. And then he just passes out, and then Vespa saves his ass. And then I love the whole thing about after that, like, in, like, the first round, he kills those two fucking Ugandan guys, and he's all, like, bloody and beat up, then he goes back and cleans up, and he, like, sits down at the fucking poker table like nothing happened. And when he gets poisoned and the whole defibrillator incident, he does the exact same thing. Oh, he's all nonchalant about it, but he's got a nice little quib to go with it the fourth round which it basically starts off with an all-in bid of of 4.5 million dollars and and bond wins with a straight flush you know it's when they they kidnap vespa and i really enjoyed that scene right there when after they kidnapped vespa and i thought it was really cool how they did that where like bond comes around the corner and then she's like in the middle of the road yeah, I did. Okay, look, I'm not going to lie. The first time I saw this movie, I was really pissed with this scene because I thought I was going to get a Bond car chase. The car chase lasts for it's got to be it's it's got to be less than a minute. But yeah, it's definitely less than a minute. Yeah, it's definitely less than a minute. It, but it's it is kind of cool because that car crash, the wreck is fucking amazing. It is. It really is. <laughs> it's before this whole car chase scene, there is a real nice scene. Like Bond goes all in and he wins, of course. And then he he kind of has like an after party with Vespa where he wants to get some dinner. And he actually figures out the end of the movie right there based off of her necklace. How many times have we talked about necklaces, Paul? Like every fucking podcast that we do together? We got to talk about a man. necklace, right? It seems like the necklace never fucking ends, dude. This isn't even a horror movie, but again, nope. somebody that's in trouble. Not, they're not dead this time, but now it's it's from somebody that's in trouble is given the necklace as a constant reminder 
But now it's to make somebody do evil instead of to make somebody do good. Maybe we're just, uh, you know, destined to talk about necklaces together in this podcast. When after Bond wrecks the car and kind of gets captured, I was like, oh, okay, well, we're just going to go into a typical Bond torture sequence where the main villain tries to get some information out of Bond, which he's never going to get out of Bond. And he spends more time running his mouth and bullshitting and doing monologues than actually torturing or trying to get the real information out. And boy, was I wrong about this movie. Right? This scene addresses those wow. issues. And dude, the writing is so good. The writing is so good in this scene. You know... I never understood all these elaborate tortures. It's the simplest thing to cause more pain than a man can possibly endure. And of course, it's not only the immediate agony, but the knowledge that if you do not yield soon enough, there will be little left to identify you as a man. The only question remains. Will you yield in time? And it shows you right there how much of a fucking badass. Because I wondered, I was like, well, why the hell did this guy just break the seat out of this chair? Dude comes out the road with the ball on the end of it. And I was like, oh, my God, man. Are you really going to hit this dude in the fucking nuts with this? Oh, God, dude. What's crazy yeah, that- is, like, right before he's getting shot, he flips this dude over. And, like, yeah. when Lashif gets that knife out, I was just, oh, my God, dude. You really aren't going to tell me, are you? No. <laughs> so I think... <laughs> I'll feed you what you see not to value. Bond is straight going to get circumcised. Oh, my God, dude. So terrible, right? I don't mean circumcised. I mean castrated. When I was watching this for the first time, when Lashif just gets fucking shot in the face, it took me the fuck out of the movie. I was just like, what the fuck just happened? Why did that happen? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I know that guy's a shadow organization. What's going on? What's happening here? Yeah, when I was first watching this, like, I mean, at the moment of first experiencing this, I was just like, what the hell? That's so weak. That's crappy story writing. Fuck you guys. But then where the story goes from here, I reversed that decision real quick. Up until the next big action sequence, I kind of thought the whole... The whole things between Vespa and and Bond, it was just like, uh, yeah, it's mediocre. And then all of a sudden they throw a nice Shalomalon twist up on your ass, and they're like, oh well, she's actually fucking screwed Bond over, like royally screwed Bond over, and she's taking all the money. Hold up, let's back up. Let's talk about this whole romance <laughs> sequence here. Bond does not fall in love. Well, he did. Un- he did actually get married in on Your Majesty's Secret Service. Okay, that that's an exception. Okay, Bond is a ladies' man. Vesper's character—they have this whole romantic sequence 
Okay, this is a reboot. James Bond is starting all over again from scratch. We're getting the gun barrel sequence all over again. We're seeing the origin of that. We don't actually get the gun barrel. We've seen James Bond order martinis, but not order them shaken, not stirred. He hasn't exactly figured it out yet. But here we go. This romance sequence kind of comes out of left field. Like I, f- I like when he, when he wakes up, he feels like it feels like he's immediately in love. Like he is automatically in love, and she automatically loves him for some unknown reason, and you don't know why at the time. You know, now looking at that movie, as soon as he won that poker tournament, she she totally switched her idea on him, like, and how she felt about him totally switched after he won. And now looking back on it, I don't know why I didn't see her betrayal coming. I actually saw her betrayal coming fairly early on. It had ended and it had come to a climax. Like our main bad had been dealt with at that point. And we just really had some questions that needed to be resolved. But the movie kept going. Because, you know, Bond quits at this point. Like he quits MI6. MI6 is no more. He stops. He stops being a secret agent. He's going to sail yeah, around he, the world with her, right? He has sent M his letter of resignation, living the rest of his life and not being a double O, double O agent. You know, because even earlier in the, in the in the movie, he makes some comment to M about, well, at least the life expectancy for double O agents aren't that isn't that long, so you don't have to worry about me being around that long. Like later on in the movie, you know, you find out that Vespa's character's giving him a reason to say, hey, you know, okay, maybe it's time I really should just not do this shit anymore and just settle down and be a normal person. Yeah, he's like saying, maybe I shouldn't kill people any longer and I can still retain a part of my soul and I can have a life with you. Man, this movie is such a tragedy. Like, outside of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and a little bit of Skyfall, this is the most tragic Bond. It's so tragic because he's becoming Bond not because he wants to, but because just because... He has it, to. Exactly. There's no other thing for it. What, what the fuck else is he going to do? What else does he have in his life? I don't know, but based no. off this movie, nothing. The only person that's ever made any kind of major connection to him in his life turned out to betray the shit out of his ass. You know, even though he, even though she still betrayed him, he still loved her enough, tried mightily to save her life in the end of this film, and he failed. And I think that also says another thing about this film is the fact that he failed at something. To see Vespa literally take, kind of almost take her own life, whether it be because of her betrayal to her husband or boyfriend with Bond or her betrayal to Bond, you know, for her husband or boyfriend or whatever. A combination of both. She just couldn't live with herself anymore. Okay, here's how I read it, is that she's trying to save her boyfriend, but she she does sleep with James Bond. Like, she's trying to save this other guy from this evil secret organization she has sex with james bond and they do form a relationship and it's it's not 100 percent sure how long this lasts from the the torture sequence at the end of the movie and Lashif dying 
to Bond getting better and them being in Venice. It it could be a week, it could be a month. The timeline's not it's it's really fuzzy and we're not given dates. She ends up in this elevator, but she she does commit suicide. She locks herself in. And the way I took that is that she loved Bond and her boyfriend and she kind of did wrong by both of them and she just didn't want to deal with the shame and anger from these two men. She slept with and loved both these guys and didn't want to make a choice. I don't know. I mean, really, it's not her fault, though. You know what I mean? No. And Bond did try, man. He he, he really did try to save her. Oh, uh, dude, when she he, drowns, that's really fucked up for a PG-13 film. Yeah, it is. I mean, it really is fucked up. You know, like his acting in that scene is, is phenomenal. Um, yeah, he's genuinely upset. This is the first time we see Bond really upset at a dead body, right? Yeah, and like see him get emotional over someone's death. Yeah, because he's been very cold and callous before this. But even in the end, though, she still she still helps him out because she gives him the name, the mastermind of this whole little this little plan. And then he he looks up the dude's name and. That's when you see the Bond that we know. You know. Oh yes, right. He's got the suit. He's got the introduction, and he's got the confidence. And he even uses the famous line. Hello, Mr. White. We need to talk. Who is this? Ah! Ah! The name's Bond. James Bond. Overall, I have to say Casino Royale was definitely uh, a blast to watch. It's the first time I've watched a Bond movie since the Pierce Brodson. And I would say David Craig is an awesome Bond. Casino Royale was amazing. This is a really good movie. I... Cannot say enough great things about this Bond film. I mean, is this my top five? I don't know. Is it my top ten? Absolutely. Yes, this is great. I know Skyfall is in my top three. I mean, Skyfall is so great. Because Casino Royale, at, directed by Martin Campbell, um, his only other Bond film was Goldeneye. I mean, this guy knows how to reboot Bond. He knows how to bring Bond in a new light. Pierce Brosnan made Bond cool. When Daniel Craig came on the scene, he made him cool again for a whole new generation. When he gets in later in the series, he starts to fit in like, dude, I can't wait for you to watch Skyfall. When you watch Skyfall, I think he nails, he nails what Bond is. He's the perfect balance between fun and serious. In that film, I I really enjoy that movie. I think it's great. If you want some Bond films to watch, I recommend that. I mean, watch the ones I recommended at the beginning of the show. Um, The Spy Who Loved Me. 
Diamonds Are Forever is a great one. Goldfinger from Russia with Love. Dr. No for Your Eyes Only. License to Kill. Golden Eye. These are all Bond films that are really great. That 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 are great that I love. And these are stunts that are done like, you know, I mean, in Casino Royale, most of these stunts were done for real. Like there's that crane sequence in the movie where they're jumping from crane to crane and that that in the beginning of the film, that big that big set piece. Those are real guys doing those jumps. They're doing that shit for real at the height you're seeing. That's a real jump. They do have safety cables on, but those safety cables are to stop them from falling to their death. The cables do slow down as they approach their landing point to stop them from, yes, smacking themselves in the face by a giant metal crane. So, I mean, look, man, like, what what else do you want? I mean, the money is on screen. The production value is on screen. The shots are amazing. There are some beautiful landscape shots in this film. There are some really gorgeous, gorgeous helicopter shots, too. If you haven't ever seen a Bond movie, this is the one where you start on. It's modern. It was This Bond film was definitely a new film for me. This is the first time I watched it was right before we did this podcast, and I loved it. I mean, there were a few little uh, problems and nuances that I picked up on during the film, but overall, the film is definitely a fresh take on Bond, and it is probably one of my favorite, new favorite Bond films. You've always kind of been curious about Bond, but never really checked it out. Yeah, definitely check it out. And I'm totally with Brian on this one that, you know, Casino Royale is a good place to start. Hey, dude, Paul, thank you so much for coming on, dude, and talking with us. It's It was nice to have a uh, a new perspective on this film as opposed to my extremely jaded fanboy view. Thank you so much, dude. Oh, man, it's no problem. And it was also interesting to do something other than a horror movie. Uh, I think this is the first movie that you and I have covered that, other than Ninja Scroll, that hasn't been a horror movie. So it was it was good to kind of get out of that. Too. Yeah, I totally agree. And we're going to do some, some more films outside of the horror genre here. I promise you. Baby steps here, people. <laughs> Baby steps. That's going to do it for us here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. If you guys want to get in touch with us or suggest a topic or a movie we should cover, you can get in touch with us. Our email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. That's themoviecrew, and crew is spelled C-R-E-W-E, extra E at the end, at gmail.com. And like always, we leave out the show with a bitchin'-ass song. And tonight, Paul... Tell these lovely people what they're going to be hearing. Tonight you're going to be hearing the intro song to Casino Royale called You Know My Name by Chris Cornell. Enjoy. Later. If you take life, do you know what you give? I'll die you won't like what it is When the storm arrives Would you be seen with me By the merciless eyes I've deceived 
Again! 